Welcome back to My Little Tonys. Here we are, finishing our 1994 coverage. I'm Anna. And I'm Tim. I didn't really realize when we started it, but in some ways this season really reflects kind of a reckoning that's happening on Broadway, because you have Disney coming in and really corporatizing Times Square, like bringing in the idea of the family show, which like had not really been a thing before. But you also have Broadway trying to grapple with how to use technology to make something that is very much not like a mass medium to market it because we have not only the infamous infomercial for Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public, which we're going to talk about more later, Mm -hmm. but also I didn't realize there were talks to broadcast Damn Yankees as a pay-per-view event Mm -hmm. that fell apart. I think that while this season feels like kind of sparse, I think a way to look at it is it's kind of like boiling down these themes that you're talking about in putting them on the center stage. Yeah, it's very much a harbinger of things to come. It's interesting, too, because we have a recording of Passion that I think has really helped it live on, but also Twilight Los Angeles 1992 was also shot by PBS, and, you know, that's, like, a very special type of work that, like, I think it's important that that performance exists as, like, a film thing because it is in so many ways. It's about the text, but it's also about seeing one person perform it in this masterful way. So it is interesting that this season has these things that have kind of carried over. Should we talk about the other two new musicals or do you want to do the revivals first? Let's do the revivals since that's where the ceremony starts. All right. right. So we had four revivals that I would go see in a heartbeat. It was a very good year. I feel a little let down by how they just packaged them all together. I know. I guess they were trying to get the ceremony in under a certain time. That's the only thing I can think of. Yeah. Well, that totally makes sense because they literally get everyone off like everyone's speeches are like cut short yeah even steven spinella who's like being like all of my friends just died of aids i know and they're like okay Okay, wrap that up we we heard it last year it's very important for me to remember four friends who i lost this year four men of the theater keith jones alan perry paul walker and ron vodder i think we all lost them this year and i I feel as a stage actor, I depend so much on people's memories to give my work life after I'm done that this remembrance is appropriate tonight. I want to thank everybody involved with this production, my fabulous friends, and especially Kathleen Chalfont, Ellen McLaughlin, and Tony Kushner, who I started this journey with. Thank you very much. But actually, you know, as a side note, that was something that I was seeing a lot when I was searching through the New York Times archives. Like when you search the name of these shows, it was littered with these obituaries being like all of these people died from AIDS. It's, I mean, obviously, like you knew it was happening, but it, it really was just so devastating to the theater community. So, yeah. So Victor Garber kind of walks us through. He was playing, you know, Applegate, mm-hmm. a.k.a. the devil in Damn Yankees and he uh, is walking us through to the tune of Those Were the Good Old Days, which is his big solo in Damn Yankees. Um, it's also fun because he's like on like a big cell phone. <laughs> no, a big red cell phone. A big red cell phone. I would totally trade in my iPhone for that. Like, <laughs> they still have that lying around. Hello, Hal, it's me. What do you mean, who? Who else gets to leave? 
in these revivals, the one thing that um, you kind of do see the way that they're presented uh, lends itself to is like how similar Grease and Damn Yankees are. Uh, what do you mean? Like energy wise? Energy wise. Yeah. And I think energy wise how uh, She Loves Me and Carousel. Are. Yeah. And you know what's interesting is that they this year they had one show each from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, which I thought was cool. Oh, that is cool. It is kind of interesting because I think that growing up in the 90s and 2000s, I like was aware that all these like classic shows were being revived on Broadway. Learning more about them and like learning what, which ones worked and what spins on them worked. And it's interesting that you put She Loves Me and Carousel and Damn Yankees in Greece together because Ben Brantley wrote like a little puff piece comparing Carousel and Damn Yankees. All right, maybe you've seen them both already. But there's the usual summer drought in New York theater. And Carousel and Damn Yankees, two of the rare Broadway musicals whose performers seem more like humans than electronic puppets. Going back to that dancing robot theme, I mean, (laughs) I know this is 10 years earlier, but he really has that fixation, are very much worth revisiting, preferably back-to-back for purposes of comparison. Both products of this country's post-war boom years, they were standouts in a season flooded with images of mid-century America. Both are set in worlds cherished by nostalgic believers in a lost American Eden, small town, turn of the century New England, and the baseball fields and suburban homes of the 1950s. If Damn Yankees is a comforting lullaby, Carousel is a wake-up call, as resounding as its climactic slap. By uncovering the grit and carnality implicit in the original, its English director, Nicholas Heitner, subverts every distorted memory of the show as a syrupy slice of moral uplift. As a tandem, the revivals are a perfect date package. Think of the discussions you could have. For the bookish, are the English better at theatrical revision than Americans? For the whimsical, which musical would you rather live in? For the prurient, who's sexier, Michael Hayden or Jared Emick, Sally Murphy or B.B. Newworth? So I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, no, I actually um, identified the same passage. I think that the comparison of those two is like, in the case of Damn Yankees, it's like, okay, this is like a glossy mounting of how it looked then with like a couple fun little updates versus a reimagining of Carousel and taking Rodgers and Hammerstein back to like what they're about. Yeah. Because I think that, like, in a lot of the other press, I think that, like, the sentiment he has here, you see in almost every other piece written about it. In another piece, someone makes the point that this isn't a new spin on Rodgers and Hammerstein. This darkness has always been there. Everyone was under the impression that the sound of music is what Rodgers and Hammerstein are about. And it's funny, because reading all the reviews of this, it, like, sounds like the... Yeah. How people (laughs) are talking about this new production of Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. which... Granted, it is a much more radical production-wise deconstruction, but it doesn't alter any of the book or the lyrics. So it's like, it's funny that, you know, we keep having to have this reckoning with Rodgers and Hammerstein where it's like, actually, they were writing about some really dark and complicated stuff. So the revival of Carousel, it was a transfer of a production that originated at the National Theatre in London in 1992. And it ran... Almost a year, 337 performances. So, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein, book music and lyrics. And it was adapted from the play Lilium by Ferenc Molnar, directed by Nicholas Heitner, choreographed by Sir Kenneth McMillan, scenic design and costume design by Bob Crowley. And it was nominated for five Tonys and it won all five. Which is amazing. It is. You know what's funny is that She Loves Me actually got nominated for nine, but it only won one. Yeah, and it is interesting because with the exception of Audra, no one is nominated in the best acting categories. And three out of the four acting winners were from revivals, mm-hmm. apart from Donna Murphy, which goes to show mm-hmm. how strong of a year this was for revivals. Yeah, and all the reviews singled out Audra as the big find of the production and 
sort of, you know, running away with it. When did she drop the Anne? It must have been between this. I think she didn't have it for masterclass. Oh. I think this, I think she dropped it pretty quickly. But she was only 24 here. She's just, you know, amazing. Her version of Mr. Snow on the cast recording makes me cry. When I marry Mr. Snow The flowers will be buzzing with the harm of bees The birds will make a racket in the churchyard trees And they had like a cute little puff piece about her in the New York Times where they talk about how she fainted during her audition. <laughs> I think part of what made this production really special is that it had really a really incredible design. First of all, um, usually the prologue starts um, already on the fairground, but Nicholas Heitner's idea was that it starts sort of like the slow parts in the beginning start with the women working at the mill. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of has this class consciousness element that isn't always there. And then they leave and they go and the, the fairground kind of emerges around them and like the big sort of coup at the end is that the carousel is slowly built over the course of the song and then it's actually in like a real working carousel mm-hmm. which there's some footage of it it seems really amazing thinking of like james mcmullen's poster it kind of suggests this like dark gritty like working class yeah so first of all something a common theme i noticed was that like the new york times profiles of a lot of the artists like the tech the tech artists mm-hmm. had very rude descriptions of them this is for a profile on Bob Crowley, who did the sets. The praise has both pleased and flummoxed Mr. Crowley, an amiable, jowly man of 41 who wears glasses and could use a haircut. Yeah. Like, could you imagine being like, oh my God, the New York Times is profiling me and it says you're jowly and you need a haircut. Yeah. That is not, that is unnecessary. But kind of like hearkening to 1998, I think that when they are giving out the technical aspects of the awards, they do like the little like edited down like introduction of people like talking about their craft. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I love that too. But you know, it is interesting to like see the people. Yes, they're always the most eccentric, bizarre people. Exactly. Like, who are normally not allowed on camera. 100%. So one thing he said in that profile that I thought was interesting was the governing image of the show is a circle, the most basic human symbol, Mr. Crowley said. After all, he added, the show isn't about a carousel. It's about the world going round. <laughs> That's so profound. Yeah. And like reading everything about this show, it really just like stands out in contrast with this most recent revival where it felt like nobody thought about it where they were just like oh yeah carousel it's a classic we'll just like throw it up there you know everybody's just kind of doing what they're doing Mm -hmm. and like this seems like they really went in and really deeply thought about it and what it means and what the troubling parts of it mean and it was it seems like it was super effective mm-hmm. an important part of it is that they cast it very young um the guy who played billy who was the only guy who came over 
from the um, National Theatre production, Michael Hayden. I think he was 28 um, when they did it in London. And they, like, really emphasize how he kind of comes from, like, this gritty background. He gets a weird profile where they, like, really imply that there was, like, domestic violence in his his family, which is, like, Yeah. But he didn't even get nominated for a Tony, but there was Mm -hmm. really a big publicity push for him. This is a quote from that profile. His equally picturesque American childhood was all but wrecked by those same destructive forces. Kicked in doors were so common at the Hayden family house that they were stacked up in the basement like cordwood. Even as the lighthearted clam bacon carousel conceals an attempted robbery that leads to Billy's suicide, Mr. Hayden's choir boy looks and athletic skill covered personal problems that almost kept him from being the actor reviewers have called superb and unbearably tender. That is really sad. I know. I think that a show like this has a responsibility. It like owes itself to the text to be truthful with what you're depicting and not try to like translate it into something that's more palatable for today's audiences. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think we're probably going to do um, an episode, maybe we'll do like a Rodgers and Hammerstein 40s episode where we mm-hmm. cover both Oklahoma and Carousel and sort of talk more about it. But I think, I think the big kind of argument over this show is whether it's glamorizing or like excusing domestic abuse by the way it depicts it and i think this production of the show uh, it seems like it very much does not do that mm-hmm. and i think it, it does go back to our conception of rogers and hammerstein as a team that writes these boy meets girl and they're in love and we root for them kind of stories which really isn't the truth of what most of their body of work is like yeah no totally so this is from one of the reviews Carousel will be 50 next year, but as of this morning, it is the freshest, most innovative musical on Broadway. It is also the most beautiful. This is a luminescent musical shot through with pain and bewilderment, an uplifting musical in which the lives of most of the major characters are either miserable or misspent. The paradoxes and contradictions are precisely what keep Carousel alive and vital. The simpler-minded entertainments tend to die young. Over the years, Rodgers and Hammerstein have come to stand for a corn-fed American goodness and the more saccharine forms of optimism. It's an erroneous impression, largely spawned by the sound of music and Hammerstein's moralistic injunctions to climb every mountain or whistle a happy tune. Mr. Heitner will have none of it. He wants to restore the grittiness to Carousel, and in that respect, gorgeous singing matters less to him here, I suspect, than the proletarian authenticity of the characters. I feel like that was the hot ticket this year. It only ran less than a year. That's interesting. I found an article about it. They decided to close it in January rather than because normally there's like a slump there's like a winter slump for musicals it was still running to 90 percent attendance Mm -hmm. there are 150 people on the carousel payroll said bernard gersten lincoln center theater's executive producer and the show must sell about 415,000 worth of tickets a week to break even about what it is selling now we foresee that in january it will drop to 310 to 330,000. mr gersten said all the cast contracts are up on january 15th recasting rehearsal and costuming new members would cost 100,000 to 150,000 dollars he asked Estimated. We could get through the slump to the end of March or April, but the bill would come to 600000 or more, he said. We're a nonprofit, and that's not really a good use of resources. So I thought that was kind of interesting, like, crunching the numbers of keeping a show like that running. I was surprised that the choreographer, Kenneth Macmillan, he received the, his Tony posthumously, <laughs> and he died before he even really finished choreographing the original London version in a piece in the New York Times. Dance expresses what words cannot, as a 
saying goes, and Nicholas Heitner, the director of the new revival of Carousel, made an inspired choice in his choreographer, Kenneth Macmillan. It isn't that virtually everything, including a revolving turntable, moves with uninhibited vitality in this positively fluid production. It is rather that no other dance maker would seem so naturally attuned to this reinterpretation of Rodgers and Hammerstein's musical to bringing out in the 1990s the dark underside of 1940s sentimentality. So it is, you know, this was the first musical that Macmillan had ever worked on. Um, he was an accomplished ballet choreographer. It's just like really cool to you know see an artist who is so accomplished in his you know field of work kind of like taking on this form and bringing new life and a new perspective to like something that was like so integral to um, American musicals these dream ballet sequences. Agnes DeMille is a tough act to follow and it seems like he really made it his own. Mm -hmm. I think I just want to wrap it up with Frank Rich wrote a really interesting essay reflecting on this production, which I think really captures what people responded to about it. The audience came to Lincoln Center for a sentimental nostalgia trip back to that idyllic America of cockeyed optimism. Instead, they found themselves abandoned in a dark alley. Until now, the true carousel had been suppressed. It disappeared in the 50s when Hollywood and a thousand stock productions boulderized the show to fit the treacly conformist culture of a decade whose rigid dogma was sexless suburban family bliss. Confronting the unexpurgated carousel in 1994, we can see clearly that it tells the truth about its era rather than preaching the expected R&H positive homilies. There were plenty of Billy Bigelows and women loyal to them, as well as a 25% poverty rate by the prosperous 50s. But Americans were expected to keep whistling happy tunes. Wife battering was barely acknowledged, and the country's rising intake of alcohol and tranquilizers took place behind closed ranch house doors. Today, debunking the happy post-war years is an academic industry but art speaks more powerfully than sociology. While the Lincoln Center carousel unfolds in beautiful sets that nominally fit the picturesque Rodgers and Hammerstein mold, its New England is not quaint but lonely, more Edward Hopper than Norman Rockwell. The lovers, two little people who don't count at all in Billy's bitter words, are a hot pair, but they grope desperately for each other against a vast moonlit night that only emphasizes their lonely status in an indifferent universe. At Lincoln Center, the audience begins sobbing as soon as it hears you'll never walk alone. But is that because anyone takes the anthem's words literally? Everything about this musical says that we are alone. The audience crying at Carousel realizes that it is up to us to break this country's unending cycles of social injustice and domestic violence, and that not even Rodgers and Hammerstein, the soothing parental figures we had always depended on, can bail us out. Walk on through the wind. Walk on. I mean, we can just move chronologically through 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Perfect. So Damn Yankees played at the Marquee Theater from March 3rd, 1994 to August 6th, 1995, with a total of 519 performances. 
And you got a book by the 106-year-old George <laughs> Abbott and Douglas Wallop, and then music by Richard Adler and Jerry Ross. And it was directed by Jack O'Brien and choreographed by Rob Marshall. And it was based on a novel, The Year the Yankees Lost the Pennant by Douglas Wallop. This is like certainly a very star-studded revival. You have Victor Carber, you got B.B. Newworth, you got um, the up-and-coming Jared Emick. Yeah, you know, it was surprising to me reading the reviews of this that Garber and Newworth... They kind of got mediocre reviews and everyone was singling out the uh, supporting characters, which I don't really think of Joe as like a Tony winning role. Yeah. But he must have been really good in that role. Yeah. And also he's just very hot. He is super hot. And you know, um, although I guess by the time this comes out, this will be very old news, but like you know, Chris Evans was in the news lately for being like, I want to do a musical. And everyone was like, oh, he should be in Guys and Dolls. But I think he should be in Damn Yankees. I think that would be a perfect role for him. Yeah, kind of going back to what you were just saying, I think part of me is like, oh, B.B. Newworth has a few Tonys. She must have won one for Damn Yankees. But in the reviews, they are very unkind to her. Yeah, and it makes sense now in retrospect, like why they performed... And I mean, also just because it's a banger, why they performed Shoeless Joe from Hannibal Moe instead uh-huh. of singling out BB. Speaking of Shoeless Joe, so that song is performed by Vicki Lewis, who I knew from um, her role in News Radio, which is a really like underrated 90s sitcom that I really wish um, would start streaming somewhere because I feel like... I feel like if it was streaming, people would be as obsessed with it as they are with Frasier. But so she plays on that show. She plays like a very kind of like deadpan, low energy, like, I guess she's the receptionist for like this radio station. So, I mean, she did that show after she did Damn Yankees, but I saw them in reverse. So like seeing her do this was so surprising and like such a total 180 from her role in that that it felt like <laughs> it felt like seeing like Aubrey Plaza come out and do like Rainbow High or something <laughs> and she she just has like such an amazing voice she's like slaying the choreography so it really gets everyone into a frenzy In the review, um, the reviewer like calls out Rob Marshall's choreography as like brainless jumping up and down, but I'm like, oh, I love this. It's still very fun to watch. He was nominated for two Tonys this year, so <laughs> must be doing something. Gene Kelly has this quote that like, if I wasn't a dancer, the Pittsburgh Pirates would have had the best shortstop that... <laughs> They could have ever had. Oh, I had never heard that. Yeah, and it's like, you know, in reference to like the athleticism of his choreography. But I think that, you know, Rob Marshall must have heard that quote somewhere (laughs) down the line. I also saw a funny piece in the New York Times because like Broadway has sort of like a, you know, intramural softball league. And they was talking about how the damn Yankees team is actually doing terribly. (laughs) They were like two and seven or whatever. So being good at dancing in a baseball uniform 
is not the same as being good at baseball. I think that the, like the strangest thing about this production, and uh, this kind of goes back to what we were just talking about with Carousel, is that the show actually like hibernated for a couple weeks. So in this article in the Times in December of 94, in a novel attempt to bypass the winter slump in theater ticket sales, the producer of Damn Yankees is hoping to make his show hibernate for two months and emerge at the end of February with Jerry Lewis in a starring role. Under the plan, Damn Yankees would close at the marquee on December 31st after the usually busy Christmas week. The cast, musicians, and crew, but not the box office, would be laid off. The theater would stay dark except for rehearsals until it reopened on February 28th with Mr. Lewis playing the devil, a role now filled by Victor Garber, whose contract is up. Broadway veterans say they cannot remember a musical successfully attempting a break like this, which will happen only if the producer Mitchell Maxwell gets the cooperation of the theater unions. January and February are its the usual months for ticket sales, and last winter snowstorms made it one of the worst on record. Several musicals, including Carousel, Guys and Dolls, and Passion, have already said that they will close in January. Others like Les Mis, Miss Saigon, and Tommy have cut some ticket prices in half for that month. I did see a couple of references that that winter was really tough. Mm-hmm. And speaking of Jerry Lewis coming in to replace Victor Garber, which was his Broadway debut, by the way, other ideas batted around Yankees, he said, were Joel Gray or someone of color like Greg Hines, which is a fairly cynical expression of the theory that a black star can revitalize a box office by drawing black theater goers, as Vanessa Williams did for Kiss of the Spider Woman, which I thought was kind of an interesting aside. Yeah, that actually is like very strange. I like don't think that the math on that doesn't necessarily No, I don't add think up. so <laughs> either. And first I was like, oh, it's great that they're, you know, trying to bring in someone of color. And it's like, maybe just bring in Gregory Hines because he'd be really good. Yeah. So the other big thing that they also celebrate about this at the Tonys is that George Abbott, still kicking at 107, is brought out at the end of the performance, literally looking like a skeleton with skin. He looks like a puppet of that Six Flags guy. Oh man, I know it's rude, but I think he had a real sense of humor about himself, so it's okay. And my favorite anecdote about George Abbott, he had a long romance with actress Maureen Stapleton from 1968 to 1978. She was 43 and he was 81 when they began their affair. Then 10 years later, Abbott left her for a younger woman. Oh my God. Can you imagine being left by a 90 year old for someone younger? (laughs) (laughs) So he's flanked by uh, Gwen Verdon and Gene Stapleton, who... We're in the original cast. What do you say we get on with this, Mr. Abbott? It's a good idea. (laughs) On with the show. (laughs) But the craziest thing about that is like, so they announced Best Revival right after, and Gene Stapleton says, damn the Yankees. And it's like, (laughs) you were in damn Yankees. Why Why do you not know how to say it? Damn the Yankees. But Gwen is a vision and like yes. like watching all these Tony ceremonies, um, it's like interesting to see how like someone like Bernadette Peters or even like Isabel Stevenson <laughs> is, you know, jumping through eras like how they are different. But it's like Gwen is like serving Gwen energy. I know this is I mean, we saw a little cameo from her in 84 mm-hmm. when she came out and did Chicago. But this is really she's really kept a low profile at the Tonys that we have uh, seen so far. But I guess her glory days were really like the 50s and 60s but you know carol channing's there every year it's true (laughs) carol channing is like the terminator (laughs) i know 
Yeah. R.I.P. It's like whenever they do like an audience shot, it's like someone wearing like an extreme like gray bob. It's like, oh, there's Carol Jenner. Yeah. And I think the only other thing we really need to mention with this is that they were talking about doing this pay-per-view broadcast of it, which is kind of like the eternal question that still is debated all the time today about whether filming Broadway shows is worthwhile from an economic perspective. Um, and like whether it cuts into future ticket sales, obviously it fell through. I wish it had not because I would have loved to uh, be able to watch it now. So the guy, these are quotes from the guy who was trying to get it done and from the union head. The con is that the experience of going to the theater can't be duplicated on a flat screen, Mr. Cher said. I agree with that. But if you're trying to sell it, you're not trying to masquerade it as the same experience as the live event. What you're selling is an observation of what's going on there. It's almost incomprehensible to me that a person would watch a television event from Broadway, enjoy it, and then say, this is great, but I don't want to see it live. It's my belief that this is the world's greatest advertisement for live theater. So Mr. Eisenberg, the union head, said, Let's assume for the purpose of discussion that Damn Yankees on pay-per-view is an extraordinary success. It paid a lot of money to the producer and the investors, and the play closed a month later. Who would have been hurt? The workers. Our proposal to the producers addresses our concerns about the possibility of the play closing prematurely. And the other interesting thing is that they were proposing doing it for like a $20 pay-per-view fee, Mm -hmm. which at this point was, it was a third of the price of a real ticket. Like tickets at this point, there was a lot of to do about how Showboat and Sunset Boulevard coming in the next season were going to raise the top prices to $70 and $75. -hmm. So at this point, like the most expensive ticket to Broadway was still about $65, Yeah, which is an important context, I think. Yeah, no, it totally is. I mean, thinking about taking your family of four, you know, to see Damn Yankees, versus like paying $20 to watch in your living room is there's a difference it's funny like with people wringing their hands about Beauty and the Beast and it's like to bring your whole family there it costs $200 and it's like now one ticket costs $200 yeah even by the time of the Lion King you know we were seeing ticket sales over $100 yeah Moving on to the 60s, we have another one of my faves, She Loves Me. So She Loves Me, it ran for about a year, and it was a transfer, um, it transferred from Roundabout to um, a commercial run, and it was directed by Scott Ellis, musical staging by Rob Marshall, book by Joe Mastroff, music by Jerry Bach, lyrics by Sheldon Harnick. Um, based on the 1937 play Parfumery by Hungarian playwright Miklos Laszlo. I think the um, play that Carousel is based on is also Hungarian. Oh, really? I think so. So anyway, so this is, you know, 1964 show. We're not going to talk about it that much because, spoiler alert, 1964 is going to be our next episode. In 1964 or 1963, it did run for a year, but it was a flop and lost money and was kind of overshadowed by Funny Girl and Hello, Dolly, which also came out that year. I think now it's sort of considered a a modern classic of the 60s. -hmm. And I think this this revival was one of the first steps in kind of restoring its... I mean, I think the cast album is really what kept it alive, but also this revival was sort of the first step in restoring it to its rightful place um, in the theater canon. So Frank Rich wrote, Though I didn't know much about anything else in 1963, time has borne out my youthful infatuation with She Loves Me, which has finally received the exquisite revival of its fans' dreams. An intimate work with nothing on 
its sophisticated mind other than romance. She Loves Me is no less an anomaly on Broadway today than it was 30 years ago. Given how the world has aged since then, audiences may be hungrier than ever for the summons to a continuously melodic evening of sheer enchantment and complete escape. As much as the evening evokes the past, however, it does not leave the melancholy aftertaste of nostalgia. She Loves Me is far less dated than many of those more successful musicals of its vintage, including the Tony winner of its season, Hello, Dolly, because its unsentimental romantic emotions never age. As George and Amalia gradually overcome their cynicism and melt with affection, we melt too, in defiance of our own cynical 1993 instincts. She Loves Me turns out to be one love affair that, against Broadway's odds, has grown only deeper with time. And so the other thing, there was like a fun piece in the New York Times um, profiling Bach Harnick and Joe Masteroff and sort of talking with them about their experience of it flopping in the 60s and kind of its resurgence now that I thought was very cute. They're in their 60s now. She Loves Me, their once dismissed, once lost musical, which they wrote 30 years ago, is alive again in a much praised revival, and they can scarcely believe their good fortune. A photographer asks them to pose for a picture. Joe Masteroff, librettist, Sheldon Harnick, lyricist, and Jerry Bach, composer. Suddenly, the three of them burst into song. Arms around one another, they sing vanilla ice cream from the show, boyishly, exuberantly, oh. proudly. It is, in and of itself, a musical theater moment. That's so tender. <laughs> you know. And so they talk about why it flopped originally, and the short answer is they don't know, but there is no shortage of opinions as to why. In praising the current revival, reviewer after reviewer offered reasons for the original closing. It was too special, it was too small, not enough brass, not enough legs, as in Dancing Girls. Too intimate, not enough this, not enough that. Who knows, the creators don't. The Kennedy assassination came at that period, and we closed a month or so after, Mr. Masteroff says, but his voice trails off, betraying a lack of conviction on this point. In the 60s, there were revolutions going on of all kinds, says Mr. Bach. Maybe She Loves Me seemed like an aberration then, but he too appears uncomfortable with this response. We've had endless postmortems on it, Mr. Harnick offers, and my answer is I still don't know. There is a definite tone difference between She Loves Me and something like Hello, Dolly, or Funny Girl. Yeah, those are real um, heavy on, like, knock your socks off, like, spectacle, big, you know, belty anthems. Yeah, even just thinking of how the shows open, this is just, like, so simple and small and, like, intimate with its scale of, like, another day in town, yeah. you know? It's, like, a very toned-down version of the Beauty and the Beast opening. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we'll, we'll really get into the nitty-gritty of it in the next episode, because I really love this musical and I have a lot of things to say about it. Mm -hmm. And I admittedly don't know that much about it, so... Well, I'm very excited to convert you to the She Loves Me Hive. <laughs> and it only won one Tony for Boyd Gaines's performance. Yeah, Boyd Gaines is someone who has low-key won like a million Tonys. Like you don't really think of him as like a power player, but he's won, I think he's won four. He's um one of the only performers who's been nominated in all four Tony performance categories. And he's won three. So Oh for... no, he's won four. He's won in three of the categories. Yeah, so he won for the Heidi Chronicles, She Loves Me, Contact, and Gypsy, which is a wow. very um diverse body of work. Yeah, that is extremely diverse. <laughs> and he's super charming in this performance. Yeah. She loves me, and to my amazement, I love it, knowing that she loves me. She loves me, true she doesn't show it. How could she, when she doesn't know it? Yesterday she loathed me, bah! Now today she likes me, ah, and tomorrow, contact that's crazy <laughs> i know <laughs> i know you, everyone you know 
I bet he is very, very charming in person. Not that he's mm-hmm. not a great performer, but I think, you know, a certain amount of these awards is how much you can charm the pants off people in these, like, meet and greets. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I certainly am very charmed by him. Yeah. Whereas, like, you know, I love Judy Kuhn, but, like, it makes a lot of sense to me that she um, went on to play the role of Fosca. Like, I think <laughs> yeah. she has, like, a, a look of worry permanently yeah. on her face. Well, what's interesting is she did not transfer with the production from Roundabout because she was going into Sunset Boulevard the next season, uh, which is why she Betty. doesn't. Yeah, which is why she doesn't perform in that opening. Oh um, yeah, I was actually wondering that. Yeah, that's not. Oh, she did get nominated though, so it's kind of funny where it's like she doesn't perform, but then they still are like Judy again. Yeah, uh, she loves me. That's a surefire way to win. Uh, lose. <laughs> yeah. So this isn't one hundred percent related but in that article interviewing the three of them they had some really interesting analysis of why like just talking about how like the business of broadway has changed since the 60s so what the audience may be responding to is that old chestnut the integrated book musical it was the mainstay of the american musical theater and the success of revivals like gypsy guys and dolls and she loves me served to remind us that they don't write them like that anymore and they certainly don't produce them were there really once a dozen new musicals a season every season When we were writing, Mr. Harnick says, it was financially feasible to do a show every year, every two years. You had a flop, and it's the flops that make you learn. Mr. Masteroff quotes the critic Harold Klerman, bad shows are the manure that makes good shows grow. And if you don't have bad shows, there's no manure. People have no places to just learn their craft. Mr. Vock brandishes a yellowed clipping with the names of the original investors in She Loves Me, a long list of people. Some signed on for a few hundred dollars. It's the old days backers auditions, dentists and businessmen in for the ride and the chance to go to an opening night, a pool for producers to draw on. The producer was slowly replaced by the theater owner or by the investor, Mr. Bach says, a change from the devoted producer in love with the material to a concern with an investment and getting one's money back. The Kermit Bloom Gardens, the Stuart Ostros, the Larry Kashas, the Hal Princes had been replaced by some kind of power commercial groups that raised the funds, that owned the theaters that maybe, not intentionally, have changed to a more commerce-oriented theater. I'm tingling, such delicious tingles. I'm trembling, what the hell does that mean? I'm freezing, that's because it's cold out. But still I'm incandescent, and like some adolescent, I'd like to sprawl on every wall I see. She loves me, she loves me. So should we uh, go on to Greece? Yeah. So out of all the revivals, Greece had the marathon run. Yeah, and, but by far the worst reviews. So it ran at the Eugene O'Neill from May 11th, 1994 till January 25th, 1998, with a total of 1,505 performances. Book, music, and lyrics by Jim Jacobs and Warren Casey. And and it was billed as Tommy Toon's Grease, but... Jeff Calhoun, um, who also worked with him on another musical this season, Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public, was the director and choreographer. And it seems kind of unclear what Tommy Toon's actual involvement in it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but people, I mean, a lot of the, most of the reviews mentioned him. He had his hand in it somehow. It's not really clear uh, what he actually did, though. Yeah, and it's like a very strange production one i didn't even really realize this but it was like incredibly star-studded you got rosie as rizzo megan mullally is in it teen angel is played by billy porter i think the most interesting thing about this performance is that you see kind of like 
the gradual evolution of Greece from how like the original production was super like raunchy and vulgar and very kind of gritty and dirty. Mm-hmm. And then the, the movie adaptation really like cleaned it up and has and so this revival is kind of the next step in turning it into this kind of like family friendly like kitsch look at what the 50s were like yeah which is like totally divorced from what the original concept of it was yeah and one reviewer is like if you like the original or if you like the movie you'll the show's still not for you like this production (laughs) is not for you like it's neither and part of it is that the movie had some new songs written for it and the the Weislers had a falling out with Robert Stigwood, who was the producer of the film. So they lost the rights to Hopelessly Devoted to You and You're the One That I Want. And they were not included in this production. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of this like halfway, uh, like you wouldn't think of Grease as a show that has like lost its artistic integrity over the years, <laughs> but like it kind of, it kind of has. Yeah. And um... something else I learned, one good change that the movie made is changing uh, you know, the Greasers gang to being called the T-Birds because apparently in the original they're called the Burger Palace Boys. <laughs> <laughs> so in the New York Times review, they said, the dilution of the original source had already begun with the high-spirited but sanitized film version produced by Robert Stigwood, which transposed the setting from a gritty urban environment to suburban California and put a disco spin on the music. The current production takes the process much further, with an approach that reads as an index of how American pop culture has plundered and restyled its immediate past. The Dick Clarkish disc jockey Bruce Fontaine has been reincarnated as a new wave DJ come MC, who oversees the evening in a suit that Elvis Costello might wear to play Vegas. And there's an abundance of archly naive two-dimensional visuals that evoke the advertising graphics of MTV and Nickelodeon. The review also has some very unkind things to say about Rosie. The show's nominal star, Rosie O'Donnell, a winning film actress, may also be a winning stage actress, but you can't tell it from this. As the salty mouth promiscuous Betty Rizzo, she affects a stiff Alfred Hitchcock walk in a droll deadpan delivery that conveys the character's tough defensiveness with none of her exuberant carnality. And, you know, it doesn't surprise me that Rosie was not like a, you know, natural <laughs> musical theater actress. Playing like a mean, horny teenage girl. Yeah. Yeah, um, and, like, just looking at the cast of that Tony performance, I would say the median age was 35. <laughs> yeah, it's very strange. Um, also, you know, we were talking about the sad profile that the star of Carousel got. Rosie's profile is, makes me feel really bad. I know. She's got a lot of a lot of stuff going on. They're, like, I feel like reading all these little profiles, there were so many bizarre tidbits, like, that her dad designed cameras for spy satellites. Yeah, and her mom died when she was very young. Yeah. and. But she was, like, a popular jock and homecoming queen and class president, so. Um, There was also a funny profile because Brooke Shields went in to replace her and they actually re-recorded her songs and, like, released another version of the cast album with her tracks. Um, so th- and they did a little profile of her. First of all, apparently she was just recovering from bunion surgery where she had to have both <laughs> of her feet broken. And she and Andre Agassi were dating at the time and they started dating over facts, which is very She Loves Me. Oh my God. That's so crazy. The 90s were just wild. Brooke Shields pulled a stunt like that again because she did the same thing with Wonderful Town where when she went in, she, there was like a re-recording of the cast. Oh, album. really? Yeah. Well, you got it. Everyone uh, wants to hear the soulful stylings of Brooke Shields. (laughs) And I think there was some stunt casting. Like, I think Lucy Lawless went into it. Uh, Linda Blair. 
And there was one, I, I think there was a billboard that was like, your head will spin when you see who's in Greece now. Oh my God. Yeah. I think that like, it's amazing that it stayed open this long, but not surprising. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, that Tony performance was very fun. Like, I mean, I'm kind of shocked that I didn't go see it with my family. Mm-hmm. Megan Mullally is extremely committed to her neck hula hooping. Oh my God. I yes. loved it. Well, yeah, it is. Um, I guess we'll talk about it, but it's funny because she and Victoria Clark were both in shows this season, but then they, then they went on to join forces in the How to Succeed revival a year or two later. Oh, yeah. I always forget Victoria Clark was in that. Okay, we got all the revivals. Let's just quickly do the last two new musicals. So this was a really big year for Rodgers and Hammerstein. So aside from this extremely well-reviewed carousel, there was also a review called A Grand Night for Singing that was originally presented at Rainbow and Stars at the top of Rockefeller Center. And I guess they were like, you know where this should be. Is Broadway. What's even more bizarre was like conceived by Walter Bobby, who was playing nicely, who played nicely, nicely in the Guys and Dolls revival, and admittedly has like gone on to direct other stuff. Yeah, but it like. I mean, he got a best book nomination. But with that being said, I think I like came in with a chip on my shoulder about this show. But like after watching a bootleg and listening to the recording, I really charmed the pants off me. Me too. I thought a lot of the arrangements were very fun. You can do a lot worse than Victoria Clark singing i'm just a girl who can't say no something i thought was interesting is that like a lot of the reviews point out how it was kind of a mix of like the hits and and deeper cuts it which is interesting to see it as like hand in hand with carousel as kind of revising the image of rogers and hammerstein in people's minds in the 90s so this review said a grand night for singing the new review of rogers and hammerstein songs at the roundabout theater is a studious attempt to revise that goody-goody image by minimizing it Conspicuously absent are inspirational warhorses like The Sound of Music, Climb Every Mountain, and You'll Never Walk Alone. Missing too are the declamatory love ballads, People Will Say We're In Love, No Other Love, and Younger Than Springtime. Lesson songs like My Favorite Things, Getting To Know You, and I Whistle A Happy Tune are excluded. And when some enchanted evening, the most formal of Rodgers and Hammerstein ballads, brings down the first act, it is performed in a light, breezy arrangement for five intertwining voices. Yeah, and it is interesting, though, because, like, at this point, like, a few years earlier, we have the Candor and Ebb review, The World Goes Round, Jerry Herman's review, Jerry's Girls. It's funny to, like, see one of these shows kind of, like, get elevated to um, Broadway, but it makes sense. Yeah, um, I mean, this was such a, a week year they kind of had to otherwise best little whorehouse would have gotten a bunch of tony nominations yeah um and with this all being said i think that i've really struggled to find like a rogers and hammerstein songbook album that like really spoke to me i think that i you know this we talked about how you know there's this like really rosy picture of them painted and that you know, by the 90s, they were kind of like seen as these corny, writing these like corny musicals. I think that growing up, I definitely had that conception about them. But, you know, listening to something like this and listening to like these creative arrangements and like 
interesting positioning of these songs when so many of like the Rogers and Hammerstein songbook CDs are like feel so flat and like feel like they don't really like capture what's so unique about this duo. I think that this is like a really good album that really highlights their craft. So let's move on to the uh, dishonorable mentions of the night. We pro- we wouldn't even talk about this if the season had any more like interesting things to talk about. But we, I mean, this is interesting in that it was such a huge disaster. So the best little horror house goes public. The dreaded sequel musical. It ran for twenty eight previews and sixteen performances. Directed by Peter Masterson and Tommy Toon. Choreographed by Jeff Calhoun and Tommy Toon. Book by Larry L. King and Peter Masterson. And music and lyrics by Carol Hall. And the synopsis is, Hoping to recover $26 million in back taxes owed them by Las Vegas whorehouse Stallion Fields, the IRS lures former brothel madam Mona Stangley out of retirement to run the operation. Complications arise when billionaire Sam Dallas arranges the sale of shares in the enterprise on the stock exchange, and right-wing politician Senator Harry Hardass objects to his plan. The Vegas locale allows for an ongoing parade of barely dressed showgirls in glitzy Bob Mackie costumes, Sonny and Cher, Elvis Presley, Liberace, and Siegfried and Roy impersonators, and a two-bit stand-up comic acting as MC against a background of flashing neon lights and accompanied by the sound of ever-jangling slot machines. Yikes. <laughs> so I think the most, I think the wildest thing about this show, so I mean it was a sequel to the 1978 Broadway musical um, by the same creative team, which was made into a very popular movie in 1982, mm-hmm. starring Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds. And actually, like, I don't know if this is a story that necessarily screams Broadway musical to me, but it is a very interesting story based on reality that's, you know, one of these things where, like, the U.S. government is so, like, puritanical about something like sex work until it's like, wait a minute, we can use it to make money for us. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like, there's there are seeds of, like, an interesting idea in there, I think, Mm -hmm. but definitely not executed like this. I don't know what Tommy Toon was smoking (laughs) in the early 90s, but this and the grease, it's like, oh... (laughs) Yeah, and so I think its real claim to fame or claim to infamy is that it produced the first ever, the first and I'm assuming last infomercial for a Broadway musical, which is available to be viewed on YouTube in full. And I really recommend you do that because it is absolutely insane. Everybody's talking about The Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public, the brand new American musical comedy that's just outrageous. And over the next half hour, we're going to be taking you behind the scenes to feel the emotions, the thrills, the challenges, and the fun of bringing a hit show to Broadway. First of all, it's the horniest thing I've ever seen mm-hmm. in like a way that just makes me feel like I need to take a hundred showers. <laughs> What'd you think of it? Well, it's brand new and it's something that's needed here on Broadway. A brand new show, a brand new idea, and brand new women. The women were unbelievable. <laughs> it was worth it just watching the girls for the hour. <laughs> but it has Tommy Toon being like, I've never done a flop yet and I'm not about to. And it's like, oh, Tommy. I haven't created a flop Broadway musical yet. And I don't intend to start with the best little house goes public. Yeah, and in this like 
bulk of interviews with like the creators of musical theater, he very much avoids talking about it. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. So the infomercial... Going back to the infomercial, because I just, I really need to walk everyone through it. <laughs> so first of all, it cost $350,000 to produce and $150,000 to air, and it only aired twice, which makes it even more amazing that it's on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And the infomercial told people to call the number 1-800-BROTHEL, and the code word is, the code phrase is, Tommy sent me. Um, so the guy who wrote the book... And, like, the original book that it was based on, sort of, like, the nonfiction story, Larry L. King, is, like, he is lucky that he's dead. Otherwise, he would be getting Me too into the next dimension. Like, the way he talks about the actresses and the way they talk about him is very, like, yeah, he uh, sure says a lot of crazy things. <laughs> I must say that there are probably 12, 14 uh, young women chorus girls in there that would make an old man like myself leave home almost. I mean, they are beautiful young ladies. They are talented young ladies. They dance well. They sing well. Their costumes are quite revealing, I suppose you might say. Uh, they look very good in them. Every time I see them, I think, yeah, that's a girl and I'm a boy. Larry King is playful and he does love the ladies. Larry King, who, <laughs> who's a great screenwriter and has got a mouth on him like you wouldn't believe yeah um maybe i take back that it is evil (laughs) i think it is evil and it's like and even bob mackie i said why don't we make them put them in you know every man's fantasy and so we have a cheerleader we have the perfect little chef who cooks for you know it's part of part of the whole sexual thing uh we have nefertiti we have lolita the the little little nymphette who's you know the brown the funny heart-shaped glasses they they did do a big profile of him which i thought was a very illuminating read and they say that and I was feeling bad for him going into this because they say that this year, 1993 or 1994, his son just died from AIDS and his ready-to-wear uh, clothing business had folded. So he was having a rough year. And he has this infamous association with Cher, which, you know, hopefully is going to win him a Tony this year. Mm-hmm. So they had this little tidbit that was also intriguing, which was, it was reported last year in Vanity Fair that Mr. Mackey had a falling out with Cher after she lent him money that he did not pay back promptly. Not true, he insists. Do you believe everything you read? He asks, irritated. She sent me a big bouquet of orchids two weeks ago for my birthday with a card that said, How are you doing? Love me. We go back too far. Have gone through too many things together. So much of that stuff that was printed was all twisted. It was actually all started by an employee who was let go because he had delusions of grandeur. A spokeswoman for Cher said she was out of the country and could not be reached for comment. Wow. I want to have a spokeswoman for Cher said she was out of the country and could not be reached for comment, like, on a (laughs) t-shirt. Also, I think that that note that Cher writes is very, it makes, it's very on brand with her tweets. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the original Cher tweets were her her flower cards. And, like, uh, talking about how it, like, really just, like, barely managed to open before the Tony nominations came out. Like, it was, like, a really tortured production and, like, very late nights. I have heard that there were nights that Tommy Toon was, like, physically painting, like, women's butts at, like, 5 a.m. and, like, rehearsing numbers. And, you know, hearing... I don't know. Did they make a cast recording? I'm probably not. Because, like, I only listened to the songs that they played in the infomercial, and it's, like... I mean, they weren't good, but, like, a lot worse stuff has been nominated for Tonys. So it's, like, it seems very vindictive that they, you know, went out of their way to shut out, shut it out for score. Especially since, you know, not to make it about gender, but, like, a female composer-lyricist is not coming around every day on Broadway. I'm leaving Texas, and the more that I've been thinking 
have to come right out and say I ain't too sad. I'm leaving Texas and my heart, it is not sinking. No, it pitter pats away cause it's so glad. Goodbye to good old boys sucking on their long neck beers. Bellies hanging out like sleeping hogs. Goodbye to listening to them sing about their mamas while they treat their wives and sweethearts just like dogs. Dirty dogs. There is a cast recording. Okay, so I didn't, we didn't listen to it. There's been a lot worse out there. And like, I think that the original, and we'll talk about it when we talk about it, but like, I think it has like a really cool and interesting energy to it. Totally. So another thing about it, as most critics have noted, the vulgarity in the best little whorehouse goes public is cheerfully out in the open. One bit of it that has gone unremarked is what may be the most egregious instance ever of product placement on Broadway. The clear plastic television set that spends several minutes of the show front and center has, for no easily discernible reason, a recognizable brand name to it. The reason is this. The brand is made by Matsushita, the Japanese mega manufacturer, which in 1990 bought MCA Inc., the Hollywood film company that owns Universal Studios. The entire capitalization for the $7 million show came from MCA Universal. Oh, my God. Yeah, so it was, you know, vulgar in every way you can imagine. Yeah, well, good riddance. Yeah. <laughs> and D. Hody was the only nomination that night, right? Yeah, and she she is a trooper. She, yeah. like, and she sounds great, looks great. Like, mm-hmm. I'm glad she got... Something out Yeah, of it. I'm glad she, uh, they didn't let their hatred for the show overall overrule how uh, how hard she was working i can feel it in my bones that this thing is the th- thing is going to take off and if you don't get your tickets now it's going to you're going to you're going to be waiting for a year and you want to see the original cast <laughs> <laughs> and that's us and we're now and just talking about plays we will get to talking about angels in america when we talk about 1993 we thought that it would be best to um, talk about the two parts together since they are kind of now seen as like a whole. But besides that, the two big um, plays that I would like to talk about are An Inspector Calls, which won four out of the five nominations that it got. It was like another British sendover, and it was like a revival of a classic uh, mystery play. Um, it seems really cool. Like, it won a lot of the design awards, and I think it won... Did it win an acting one, too? Yeah, it won Best Supporting Actor Actress for Jane Addams, who has, like, the most curious and interesting energy. I know. She's such a little waif. Yeah, she, like, looks like... It's like Fiona Apple or something. <laughs> yes, she is the Fiona Apple of the Tonys. Uh, Stephen Daltrey, who directed it, was kind of seen as this British wonderkin who really took this, like, stale, stuffy, classic and made it into a new kind of fascinating piece. Yeah, because when I was when they first described it, I was like, that sounds extremely boring. And then every clip they showed of it, I was like, this looks amazing. Yeah, so it ran for almost 500 performances. And I think that with like Angels in America running, this was like a, a hot ticket for the people <laughs> who were scared away by um, the realness of the American... American issues. <laughs> the American issues. And the only you know, other play that I felt worth um, giving like a shout out because I don't think that this was kind of like her big moment and she's such an important person in American theater is um, Anna DeVere Smith's Twilight, Los Angeles, 1992, which had a pretty short run of 72 performances, but it had been running at the public before that. 
Um, and it was conceived, written, and performed by Anna Devere Smith, and it was directed by George C. Wolfe, who was also directing um, The Angels in America. So, a quick synopsis, Anna Devere Smith's solo play relives three tumultuous days of rioting in Los Angeles in the wake of the first Rodney King verdict, issued April 29, 1992, when four White Los Angeles Police Department officers were acquitted of charges of assault and police brutality in connection with King's roadside arrest and beating on March 3, 1991. Caught on video, the King assault became a national media sensation, a disturbing vision of black and white race relations, and a rallying cry for racial justice. As festering anger and frustration exploded after the verdict, once again to be captured vividly on screen, Onlookers were left to wonder how far, if at all, the country had traveled since the epidemic of urban race riots in the late 1960s. And I think that this is such an interesting concept for a show. It's a one-woman show where she's, you know, basically filtering a documentary film through herself as a channel. And it's just one person on stage with, you know, various multimedia elements delivering this, like, tour de force performance and what is interesting is that she like relies very little on any sort of costume yet each of you know she'll have you know like a pair of glasses or a hat but you know each character is so fully fleshed out um it's just like an amazing thing and I think that you know she's not the first person to create a documentary theater piece like this but I think um she has really become like kind of the landmark figure of that type of work so the poster woman yeah a little excerpt from the review that I found interesting Miss Smith backs off from no one even if it means assuming the majesty of the mezzo-soprano Jesse Norman in the oratorical pomp of Senator Bill Bradley delivering some of her monologues in Korean and Spanish or plunging into the frazzled mind of an of inarticulate street people who desperately want to be heard Yet in so much diversity, there is unity. Their perspectives may be wildly different, but all these people in their fashion are struggling to put sense into senselessness and find the justice in what looks like injustice run rabid. By the end, the piece has transcended specifics and become an expression of the eternal search for order in an anarchic world. Varying her basic outfit of black slacks and blouse with the odd accessories, a tie, a pair of rhinestone glasses, a baseball cap, the actress changes identities primarily by changing her vocal rhythms and thought patterns. The words she's speaking remake not only her features but her sex and race as well. In two instances, Twilight allows Miss Smith to venture even further and act out what could be self-contained mini-dramas. And I think that, like, what is interesting... This wasn't the first show that she wrote and conceived like this, and nor was it her last, but... I think in a lot of ways it is her most successful and I think that kind of reading about her body of work she in more recent times has directed her work herself and I think that it's really I think the relationship between her and George Wolfe on this one really speaks to his talent as a director and I think based on other um, videos that I've seen of other ones I think that this is like the most successful. And it seems like I mean you know something like Diana Reagan Medea who is I think kind of the gimme to win the award and who did win Mm -hmm. it's like i think the tonys doesn't really know how to award something like this which is so kind of outside of the boundaries of what kind of plays and what kind of performances normally 
you see on Broadway. Yeah. No, and I wonder that if it were a different year, if this would be, like, considered a special event. You know, like, in yeah. the way that, you know, something like Billy Crystal. <laughs> yeah, or, like, even, like, John Leguizamo's plays. Yeah. And he's never won... He's been nominated for Best Actor a bunch, but, you know, I think the Tonys really likes to reward more traditional types of work. But it is nice that it it made it to Broadway, even Mm -hmm. if it wasn't on there for so long. Yeah, Diana Rigg, I'm sure, did an excellent job at playing Medea. But that, like, seeing the press footage of that, it seems like the most classic telling of, like, a classic work. Yeah, and I mean, I guess it, it gets down to what the issue is with all of these awards shows, which a lot of times it's comparing apples to oranges. Mm-hmm. Okay, I yeah. think... Oh, do you have... You, no, that's it. Okay. I think we're ready. To... I think we're ready. I had fun with this one. This year, they always... Sometimes I'm not always excited to go into a year, but they end up being a lot more interesting than um, I always think they are. Yeah, this year on the surface seemed like a dud, but... <laughs> or it didn't seem like a dud. It seemed like... It seemed very black and white, but I think that there's a lot of nuance to this season. Yeah, and so... For our next episode, we're going to be going to one that uh, does not seem like a dud. We're doing 1964, which is, you know, Hello, Dolly, Funny Girl, She Loves Me. And I think the last one is High Spirits, which is based on Noel Coward's play, Blythe Spirit, the musical version. Oh, love this. (laughs) Very excited to dig into that. And also... Um, we might highlight one of our favorite flops, Anyone Can Whistle, because this is our show and we can do whatever we want. Exactly. Um, so you can email us at mylittletoniespodcast at gmail.com, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, review us on, rate and review on iTunes, and uh, that's all we got to say. Yeah. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye. That concludes the Tony Awards ceremony for 1994. Good night, everybody, and thank you. Thank you.